It's actually got a piece, another piece of meat. So yes. it's three layers of meat, three layers of chicken. Um, today's sermon is going to be a bit like that. This passage is so rich, I believe it's, it's just like three lumps of meat. And what I'm going to try and do today is, is, is break it down for you into the three pieces of meat. Piece it all back together so you can take it home and eat. And those three things are love the end of spiritual gifts, and the second coming of Christ. Most um, topics that preachers, I'm sure, would love to preach on. And today's uh, title of the sermon is How's Your Love Life? It's not because I'm being particularly nosy or gossipy about you guys, but I believe actually this is the question God is asking us, that he's speaking uh, to us about through this passage, and wants to challenge us with this morning. When God in the Bible speaks about uh, the church, he refers to us as beloved. So, good morning, beloved. Didn't know how to respond to that, did you? Okay. Um, We've reached chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians. We've been doing a series on that. It's probably one of the most famous passages of scripture. It's been quoted by everyone from Tony Blair to Barack Obama. You might have heard it um, at uh, Princess Diana's funeral. Everyone who I've spoken to about it says, oh, love. You know, everyone knows what this is about. Uh, You'll be pleased to hear that in in preparation for today's sermon, uh, I've been listening to a lot of Barry White records. On Thursday night, I, I um, for the first time, watched the film Love, actually, and um, I've had a shave, I've put on a shirt and a dash of Old Spice, because <laughs> today's all about love. My, I'd like to start with a confession. Uh, it might sound like a strange uh, confession for a single young man to say, but I love weddings, and um, it's summer, everyone's getting married. I've been going to a wedding practically every weekend. And uh, do you know what I really love about weddings is you've, you've got the groom stood at the front and he's just, he's all anxious and he's just nervously waiting in anticipation. And then the bride just comes around the corner and she starts walking down the aisle and everyone's like, wow, she is gorgeous. And I swear to you, I've never seen an ugly bride. Has anyone seen an ugly bride? They're all, and you're like, man, I've missed the boat. Like, she's, she's gorgeous. And, you know, the other thing you'll find at um, a lot of weddings, if you're here and you're married, you got married in a church, or you've been uh, to a church wedding, is that the, the vicar or the pastor will probably preach on this passage on 1 Corinthians 13. It's very closely associated with weddings. That and the occasional fridge magnet on Christians' fridges. And it's true. If you apply this text to your marriage, to your relationship, it will greatly enrich your marriage. It will help you for all the years to come. Let me give you an example. Let's say there's a couple living in London And they both work really hard in the city. They both come home from work and they're really tired. And one of them, they've had a real tough run-in with their boss. And and really what they need is for someone 
to speak some words of affirmation to them. And the other one has also come home from work really tired and they're just hungry and they, they desperately want someone to just cook for them. And uh, one of them ha- has promised to the other one that, that they would pay all the bills and uh, they've forgotten to do it. And did I mention that the, the washing machine's just broken and so-and-so just rang to say, is it still cool for you to lead the Bible study tonight? You see, in those situations, everyday life, love is patient, love is kind, it doesn't get irritable, it doesn't keep an account of wrongdoing. But I think there's a real danger in us only speaking on this at weddings. I've got three fears. I know you'll like three-point sermons, so here's the first one. There's three fears with, that I have about hearing this predominantly at weddings. Number one, number one, sorry, single people often come away subconsciously feeling that they cannot love unless they find a partner and get married. I'd like to tell you today that it's totally unbiblical. Number two, single people often come away subconsciously feeling that they cannot be loved unless they find a partner and get married. And I tell you today that that is also completely unbiblical. My third fear is this. We all get caught up in the sentimentality of it all, the, the gushing at the weddings, and the passage loses its strength. It becomes something sanitized that we just stick on a fridge magnet. Would someone mind just switching off the blue thing, if possible? It's kind of glaring in my eyes. Thank you. A few weeks ago, um, we looked at a passage in in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 10. We heard about the the race that we're all called to run, a race against ourselves. It was a fantastic uh, preach, and I urge you, if you haven't heard it, to go back and download it off the website. What I've started to realize is that, that part of this race is a hurdling race. And I'd like to introduce you today to the 15 hurdles of love. You see, I think if you were the future bride and groom in Corinth, in first century Corinth, and you received uh, this letter, then you probably wouldn't be asking Pastor Paul, can you read that at our wedding? You see, we've learned elsewhere in the scripture that the Corinthians were in their spiritual gifts, in communion, things like that. They're actually being very impatient. So when they heard this, this verse that says love is patient, I think, I'm certain, that some of them would have started to feel spirit convicting them. And as I've meditated on this scripture... I've also felt the same thing. I've realized that when I come to that first hurdle, that I stumble. You see, I'm a very impatient person. And yet I've also come to see that where I fail, God succeeds. Jesus Christ would leap over all of these 
hurdles, no problem. And by his spirit, he's actually equipping us to do the same. You could, um, you could actually do a 15-week series on this. Unfortunately, I don't have time for that today. But here's how it would run. Something like this. Week one, God is patient. And we would turn in scripture to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Have a listen to this. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God is patient with us, with you and with me. If you've come here today, maybe you're just visiting, maybe you would say that you're not a Christian you're not a believer. Maybe you don't really know where you're at and you're just exploring the Christian faith. I want you to hear this very clearly. God loves you. He loves you so much. He is being incredibly patient with you. He's yearning for you to turn from your sin, from your rebellion against him, from going your own way and come his way. Every day for him, Is like a thousand years as he waits for you. So, three quick lessons that we can learn on love. Again, I know you like the three-point sermon, so here goes. Number one, love is a verb. It's a doing word. You might have heard the Massive Attack song that says love, love is a verb. Love is a doing word. It's something that you do or something that you don't do. Number two, love is something that's done to people. A lot of people say, I love football. I love the new Arcade Fire album. I love Lamp. I love love Anchorman. Um, But do you know what? Love is done towards people. God is patient with us. Our third point, love is hard. Something I've been really learning recently is the hardness of love, the choice that we have to make in choosing to love people. Sometimes it can't just be tender, it has to be tough as well. Sometimes you have to say things to people that are hard to say. I spoke to a a Christian couple married about this passage, 1 Corinthians 13. I was certain that they would know it. And I said, asked them a few questions. And I said, what's been the the best bit for you in your marriage? What's been the bit that's helped you the most? Do you you want to know what they, they said? They said this. Love bears all things. And then they conversation they actually turned it and started talking about church life all the difficulties they've been experiencing in church recently and this really fascinates me you see if you heard the the sermon last week chapter 12 is about spiritual gifts chapter 14 is about spiritual gifts in worship this chapter chapter 13 in context is about the same thing spiritual gifts and worship it's about church life it's not just about a wedding day 
So here's the passage as a whole. If you've got a Bible, please turn with me now to 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable and does not count up wrongdoing. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now, I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I've been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Incredible. You could have the most amazing supernatural gifts from God. Great acts of faith that would put you on the Christian circuit, worldwide tour, telling everyone of all the amazing things you've done. But if you don't have love, it's utterly pointless. You are nothing, the text says. So here's the key point. The thing that I want you to write down if you're taking notes, the thing I want you to leave with today. As a church, a body of believers... We will not be marked out by, the, by our use of spiritual gifts, but by the way that we use them. Let me say that again. As a church, we will not be marked out by our use of spiritual gifts, but by the way that we use them. I'm sure a lot of people have come here visiting and going, wow, your church is just like the church in Acts. It's so exciting, all the spiritual gifts. I want people to leave here knowing that we use them in a loving way. Maybe you have a gift of pastoring, of teaching people, discipling young believers, and then they stumble and they do stupid, stupid things. And you're like, what on earth are they doing? Why don't they hurry up and stop sinning? Do you know, love is patient. Maybe you're a gifted evangelist 
And actually sharing the gospel with people is really your thing. That's what you're good at. And every time you're at work or at leisure, you're sharing with people. And all these people you're sharing with, you're desperate for them to come to know God. But they're just not quite ready to take that final step. Do you know that love is patient? Maybe you've got a prophetic gift and you've come here today and you've got pictures and words for everyone and do you know what two or three people have they've already shared words and as a church we need to weigh those up you're itching just to say that thing do you know that love is patient or maybe you're at a rev church prayer meeting they're wild and and all the guys are shouting out prayers to god and really getting into God and, and you just can't get a word in edgeways and you know you're not sure when you can say your little prayer do you know love is patient beloved how's your love life I'm asking this of, of myself as well do you know Paul does this as well he starts if I speak in tongues he's asking even himself so these, these gifts, these gifts of the Spirit, things like tongues and prophetic words that we've been hearing about, when do they cease? When do they end? Here's our second chunk of meat. You see in verse 10 it says, when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Well, well when is that? There's, um, there's two schools of thought on this. Great theologians have wrestled with this. The first school of thought says that the perfect refers to the Bible. So the complete word of God, the canon of scripture, God's word, we would all say that's, that's perfect. So now we've got that, the prophetic gifts and things like that, they can pass away. Second school of thought says that the perfect refers to Jesus Christ. And so we're waiting for his second coming for him to come back and we'll keep using the gifts until he comes back if this first school of thought is true then there's a problem with us because we're either working ourselves up into a frenzy or we're doing something demonic what we have to do to find out the answer is to test it against the scripture I think it's really helpful for us to look at the, the next two verses to help us to do this. We've got in from, um, sorry, from verse 11. When I was a child, we've got this, this picture of a child giving up the old ways and coming into maturity. Well, well that could work with, with the Bible because now we've got the, the Bible, we've got the full word of God, we've got the revelation of Christ, then... Well, we can give up all those, those gifts. We've got this second picture of seeing in a, in a mirror dimly. If you had a mirror back in Corinth in those days, it would have been like a bash piece of metal. You, it would be nothing like mirrors we have today. You would kind of see a, a faded picture of yourself. And then it says we will see face to face. And this third picture, this third idea is of knowing in part and then knowing fully as we've been fully known. I think the second image here, the mirror thing, is most helpful. That's what we're going to look at now. 
this idea of going from seeing in a mirror dimly to face to face. And I've done some studying on this. And if we look at throughout scripture for references to face to face, here we go. Genesis 32 verse 30. This guy called Jacob, he wrestled with God. And then Genesis 32, chapter 30, this is what he says. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. So we see there's a guy, he's seen God face to face. If we turn to the next book of the Bible, to Exodus, to chapter 33, verse 11. Now we've got another famous character of the Bible, Moses, and he also meets with God. And then this is what it says. Thus, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. There's real intimacy here, relationship with God. And then perhaps the best one in Judges chapter 6 from verse 21 to 22. Here we've got a guy called Gideon who's, who's just built an altar of, of worship to God and the angel of the Lord comes and it says, the angel of the Lord reached out the tip of the staff that was in his hand. He touched the meat and the unleavened cakes and fire sprang up from the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened cakes and the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. Then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. Uh Uh-oh. I've just seen the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas! O Lord God! For now I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. He was really worried. They would have been worried to have seen God face to face, meeting with his holiness. You know, um, Paul also uses this phrase of face-to-face elsewhere. It's always about physically seeing someone face-to-face. Here's an example from the letter to the Colossians, chapter 2, verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face-to-face. I'm utterly convinced from Scripture that this is about the second coming of Christ and living in the new heavens and new earth, that these gifts are totally for now. There's another really helpful passage on this, if you still need convincing. In another letter, 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, it says this, Beloved, here we go again. We are God's children now. And what will be has not yet appeared, but we know when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. You know, when we when we get to that day, we will look Christ in the eyes, face to face, and we will be like Him. So what will remain when we see him? This is our third chunk of meat. We've got this last verse that says, Faith, hope and love remain, but the greatest 
of these is love. I don't think there's enough time now to really go into details on this, but I do really want to stress the importance of love. One theologian describes it as the grammar that we learn of the language that we will speak. He says, love is God's river flowing on into the future, across the border, into the country, where there is no pride, no jostling for position, no contention among God's people. We are invited to step into that river here and now and let it take us where it is going. I'd like to close now with another confession. It's something that I've been thinking about a lot. Revelation Church, beloved, I love you. I would spend all day with you, praying and prophesying over you. I would gladly give up my desires, my wants to help you out. I will pray for you if you're sick and comfort you if you don't get healed straight away. For even a couple of you, I'd probably take a bullet. And I'm gutted that I'm leaving in a month's time. I'm so sad about that. But do you know what? How much more does God love you? How much more does God love you? Another theologian says this. I thought this was brilliant. It is the love for the utterly unworthy, a love that proceeds from a God who is love. It is a love lavished on others without a thought whether they are worthy or not. It proceeds from the nature of the lover, not from any attractiveness in the beloved. Jesus, in his measure, comes to practice the love that seeks nothing for itself, but only the good of the loved one. If you want to learn something about love, turn to Jesus. There's this thing that that scientists and and mathematicians do when they discover something amazing. They They will do a demonstration. They'll publish a book or an experiment to show how amazing it is. And artists will will do the same. They'll dance or they will paint a picture or sing a song. God also does a demonstration. This is love, actually. God demonstrates his love for us in this. Whilst we were sinners, Christ died for us let us worship him let us worship the one who is love whose name is love who will equip us to love let us be a church that loves one another let us be a people that's not marked out by our spiritual gifts but by the way that we use them